Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Well, welcome lovers of product. I am here today with Tatiana Mahmoud, who is the head of product at Nextdoor. Tatiana, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So I have been head of product at Nextdoor for about six months. I've loved the product for many years. I actually joined in 2013. And so I've been, you know, very active in my neighborhood for several years. Before that, I was advising and consulting for a while, especially actually in the blockchain space for a few blockchain uh, startups. And before that, led a product team at AWS, led a product team at Salesforce, and uh, also led a bunch of innovation projects at IDEO for many years. I do have a PhD in cultural and economic anthropology, and we can talk a little bit about that as it relates to technology product management, but that's a little bit about my background and where I'm coming from. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, like you mentioned, PhD in economic and cultural anthropology. And now you've made this very interesting transition, right? How does uh, an anthropologist become a B2B and B2C tech product leader? And not just a tech product leader, but from really well-known companies, IDEO, who's you know famous for <laughs> a lot of cool companies they've worked with, Salesforce, AWS, and now Nextdoor. Yeah, I get that question a lot. And for me, it seems like a natural transition. I mean, what I found is in creating technology products, the really, really hard part, especially with services like AWS and Google Cloud, the really hard part is less the technology and more the people side. So, you know, at at its heart, really creating great products, whether they're tech products or, you know, CPG products, it's really creating great teams of people, inspiring them, to build products that other people will love. So at its core, really, technology product management is based on understanding people, understanding their mental models, understanding the context within which they fit in, and then motivating other teams of people and understanding their motivations to build and deliver those great experiences. So it's really interesting in Silicon Valley how we think that technology products are really about the technology. Engineering is certainly about the technology and I have great engineering counterparts and I've always had great engineering partners at every company that I've worked with. But the product side is really more about understanding the motivations of people and what kind of experiences and products will people really want to use? What kinds of experiences and products can we build that people will love? And that's the orientation that I think more product leadership in Silicon Valley should have. And that's why I'm really excited that someone like me, an anthropologist, I also think historians, sociologists, English majors, I think we need more of those people in Silicon Valley to lead our technology products because when you have that partnership between engineering and the social sciences and the human sciences, it is incredibly powerful and that unlocks innovation, and that unlocks creating experiences that are more likely to resonate with people 
and then will you know obviously take more likely to take off at the end. So I, I'm in complete agreement with you. I, I think you know looking for product teams that are overly technical does a great disservice to the talent that's out there. So if you're thinking of it differently, and I, I think you should, you know, what do you look for when you're hiring? Talk to me a little bit about the process of building those teams. Sure. One of the things to remember when we're building a team is it's a team, right? So you're looking for people who will complement each other. And so there's a very well-known framework for building teams, which is to look for T-shaped people. So people who, you know, are really deep in one area, but who complement each other as a team and really can have empathy for each other and can really collaborate with each other because they have a minimum threshold of understanding different aspects of the product. So on a product team, you know, I have a framework for uh, building a team, which is making sure that I have different product managers who have different depth in the different areas of the team. So on a product team, you want to have, you know, a, a good portion of the product managers who really understand society, people, mental models, behavioral sort of economics, you know, historical perspectives. So you want to have that social science, that human science element, and you want to hire on a product team, people who are very deep in that and who have expertise, right, in the social sciences. Then another part of the product team, you want to have some people on the product team who really understand the business side, right, and who understand how to do the financial modeling, how to really go after big business opportunities, how to really size opportunities and market opportunities appropriately, right? So you want to have, usually I have some MBAs, right, that I hire. And then, of course, you want to have some people who understand the technology and who are deep on the technology. Now, we are working always with engineers, so you don't need that many of them on a product team, right? But you definitely want to have some people who have some background in you know, the engineering side. And then you kind of create a dynamic together where, you know, people obviously own their own piece, but where they come together frequently, and I do it in my staff meetings every week, where we just have a very open discussion and the different product managers get the perspectives from the people who are deep in other areas that they're maybe a little, you know, weaker in, in order to work through and hash out some of the questions that they're grappling with. So, the way that you create a product team, I think a really strong product team, is to create that portfolio of T-shaped people and then get them create mechanisms so that they can collaborate and work together and solve problems together. Yeah, I, I, you're looking like at building a coverage map, so to speak, using those T-shaped people, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And again, I think that the you know you don't want to over-index on you know one versus the other two, right? But you definitely want to make sure that the hard people problems are covered because often in an organization, you do have the finance team, the finance and strategy team. You do have the engineering team to help you, to help augment the product team on kind of the, the business side and on the engineering side. But often in a product organization and in a company, you don't have a lot of those, you know, deep humanists. You don't have the people who can really model human behavior. And so you absolutely must staff that on the product side, right, on the product team, because those are the people who will help you understand the psychosocial dynamics and the mental model dynamics that will make one instantiation of a product really compelling, but a different instantiation of the same product 
might be rejected, right? So that's the part that I think uh, product teams, especially in tech, need to understand that they might be under-indexing on those folks because they're probably not going to find a lot of that in the rest of the organization unless you staff it on the product team. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Those skills are often underappreciated, I think, too. I think so, too. And we can talk a little bit about, you know, how kind of the history of Silicon Valley has developed where we've kind of lost sight of the fact that we're building products for people as opposed to for markets or for other technologists. But I think that that is coming back in a lot of the conversation that I hear among, you know, our colleagues and people all around Silicon Valley around the importance of the humanities in building technology products and in how, you know, the trajectory forward is really around focusing on the ethical dimensions of what could this product do, what could it become, and what kind of social context, frankly, are we going to put our product into in the future so that we can design it well when we're building it? So how do we prevent and how negative the negative consequences that could result from the product that we're building? And how do we anticipate, right? What are the human and social dynamics within which our product will exist in order to build the best product possible for the long term? Well said. So you've had a lot of experience in developing growing product teams and growing organizations. Talk to me about how you evangelize the importance of product across the organization. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that I think in most companies that I've been in, everybody and all of the, you know, leaders in business that I've ever dealt with have understood the importance of the product. And they almost always say that they really understand the importance of focusing on the customer, but the customer sometimes gets lost in product decision and product decision making. And so I would say, and what I would like to kind of reframe that as is where I have always tried to situate myself is in situations where I am really evangelizing for creating the customer centricity that the leaders of the organization say they want to achieve, right? So it's not really, I don't evangelize for the product because the product isn't really a person, right? It's, it's, it's there to serve the customers, right? So I evangelize for the customers. I'm always the voice of the stakeholders, the people, the customers who we're building the product for and who will be affected by whatever product or service we're trying to create. And where the rubber really hits the road there is I think most companies today say that they are customer obsessed. They say that they're customer centric. They have all of these words about the customer. But if you look at their mechanisms, the way that we build teams, the way that we hire and promote, the metrics by which we measure our success, oftentimes those things don't line up to the customer-centric words that people are saying. So the way that I've evangelized for the customer is to shift those things, right? How do we create metrics of success that are measuring what matters to customers as opposed to what matters to the shareholders only, or only what matters to business growth? As well, I really try to put in sort of feedback, reward processes, promotion processes on my teams that really reward people who are focused on customers and achieving, for example, positive 
NPS scores, who are uh, really kind of focused on achieving the metrics of success that indicate that customers are loving the product more and more, as opposed to only focusing on the you know standard usage metrics or the standard um, revenue metrics that are often in place in a lot of businesses. So those are some of the things that I do to really influence the organization to practice what most organizations preach, which is customer centricity. And I think that's really at the heart of great product management is creating those mechanisms to be truly customer obsessed. Yeah. And I, I think you're right in that it's one thing to say you're customer centric or customer focused. And then another to have the processes, the metrics and the people that are really customer focused. And one thing you talked about was those metrics. Talk to me about what you see as metrics that aren't customer focused versus ones that are. Yeah, I think, you know, in BUC consumer apps, one of the things that I caution my teams around is the metric of time and app, which is a very common metric, I think, to measure success. And when I step back and I look at it, I say, what does that metric actually measure? Does it measure how much value we're providing to the customer? Does it measure how happy the customer is with our product? What does it measure, right? And why is maximizing or increasing that metric? Why does that help us believe that we are actually building a product that people are loving or that's creating value for them? And so that's a metric that is when it is the North Star metric, and especially when it is the primary North Star metric, it gets very dangerous. And it gets dangerous if people are not stepping back and saying, why do people want to spend more time in this app? What is this doing for them, right? And so that's where we need counterbalancing metrics or even moving away from that primary metric of time and app to really understand, you know, what are the connections people are making what kind of uh, communications are they creating in, in our particular products that they might not be making in other places? And then what does our mission statement say for our company? And how do we actually line up our North Star metrics with the things that we say in our mission statement? So at Nextdoor, we really believe that our product, our app, can really help people connect in the online world in order to connect in the offline world. And and we believe in making communities really healthy and empowering neighbors everywhere to build stronger local communities. So the thing that we measure as one of our really North Star metrics is community vitality. And we measure how many connections do we make online in the app that actually translate into offline interactions. So we just launched a local deals product so that local businesses can connect with their neighbors that are around them, right? And the wonderful thing about Nextdoor is that all of the connections are local and they're proximate. So when someone redeems a local deal on Nextdoor, that means a neighbor and a business owner came face-to-face and had some interaction. When you interact and you sell something or you buy something or you give away something on for sale and free on our app, it means that a neighbor found something that another neighbor wanted to give away, and the two of them met in person and created an exchange. Those are the things that we think create really vital and healthy communities. And so as part of our community vitality metric, we're really trying to optimize the product and create really great experiences in the product 
that create those outcomes. Awesome. And I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to this because it's one of my hot buttons. And you were talking about, you know, engagement in the app and getting people to use it more time in app, right? And it's become a hot button to me because a lot of people start thinking about, oh, how do I get my DAU to MAU count higher? And I remember speaking the other day about improving metrics. And mm-hmm. so he came up to me afterwards and was looking for advice on getting their, you know, their ratio better. And I'm like, well, why? And they looked at me like, um, and I'm like, do you need your ratio better? Does that have value to your customers? And I'm like, take an extreme example, right? Tax software, right? I use tax software one day a year, usually. And I'd rather it be zero days a year, frankly, right? It just automatically did everything for me based upon, you know, my stuff from ADP, et cetera. So the idea that there's a PM out there thinking, how can I get people to log into the tax software every day? You're like, really scares me. And I think, like you mentioned, product managers need to think about this as like, what metrics are important and are they important not to, you know, your idea of stickiness or being hooked, but to the value customers get out of them, right? That's exactly right. And sometimes it does make sense. Sometimes moving from like MAU to DAU does make sense if you have something where you think people are getting more value by checking every day. So for example, if you have a a weather app, right? Probably people checking every day means that you're providing them valuable information. (laughs) So, you know, but you don't want to like, but the session shouldn't be super long, right? So in that case, it makes a lot of sense. But let's take the tax software because I love this story. It's, It's a story about Intuit, right? Intuit has, you know, made this transformation over the last couple of years to being a much more customer-centric company. And for a long time, they were like doing all this stuff internally to, to kind of create design thinking um, methodologies within their company. And then the founder stepped back at a, an executive offsite and he said, wait a second, we've been doing all of this work to become customer-centric, but the things that we're measuring are still primarily financial measures. And we're not measuring what actually matters to our customers. So exactly what you said, they identified the three categories of the things that they know Intuit customers really care about, which is getting more money, doing less work, and having complete confidence. So your point about the tax software, you just want to do less work, right? You don't want to be like, you want to do less stuff, right, in their products, but you want to get more money out of it, you know, and you want to be confident that the things you're doing are right, right? So, so that's exactly what I encourage product teams to do is to not go with the well, everybody mentioned, you know, measure this in, you know, enterprise software. And so we should too, or, well, everybody measures this in social networks. And so therefore we should too. It's really stepping back and saying, what is the thing that really matters to customers? Sometimes it's checking an app every day, like if you have a weather app, but sometimes it's spending less time in the app and just getting what you want out of it and delivering the value, right? That will create you know, the, the product love and the loyalty from customers. Yeah, absolutely. I think metrics need to be focused on their business objectives and what they're trying to do for their customers, right? And, right. and they can't just be like, hey, here's the metrics that, you know, XYZ company had that said they were important because those metrics might not apply in the same way. Exactly. And sometimes it's also taking countervailing metrics, right? So sometimes you do have, you know, a metric of Dow, daily active users, but it's also sometimes creating a countervailing metric, right, of, you know, what is the tone of the conversations, right? Because we know that sometimes, you know, increasing engagement comes at the price of negativity and negative tone. And so how do we make sure that we're measuring both of those 
at an equal rate as opposed to one versus the other. Absolutely. So, you know, let's talk about scaling. We talked a lot about like being customer centric, having that coverage map, so to speak, when you're building out your product organization, but you've been at companies that have scaled really quickly. How do you, or what advice do you give to people to scale their teams in an organization like that? And what impact does rapid scale have on the team culture and the product? So rapid scaling is, it's both very energizing and very, very difficult because things move through inflection points very, very quickly. So the way that you manage a five-person team is totally different than how you manage a 30-person team and is totally different than how you manage a 70-person team, especially once you know people start being in different offices and locations. So, so the first thing is to make sure that as a leader, you are aware and you're always anticipating the next level of the culture that you need to build a little bit in advance, right? So just as you're comfortable in your small team of 12 and you're sitting around, you know, in a conference room and you're having your team meetings in one room and you feel like it's really good, if you know that you're scaling quickly, you need to start thinking about that next level. So at AWS, it was myself and and my boss who started a team and we were building the team. We were growing the team. We had to get the team to 150 people in less than a year and a half. So from two to 150 in less than a year and a half. And at one point, I, you know, I was running the, the team meeting and we were in a conference room and we were 20 people. And I looked around the conference room and I was like, oh my gosh, I know that I've hired another 24 people who are going to start within the next two weeks. This is not going to work as the mechanism to communicate information and to make sure everybody is aligned and on the same page and rowing in the, in the same direction. So you always have to anticipate and put the mechanisms in place for the next stage of growth. Now, as a leader, another thing to understand is when you're a very small team, you're deciding what to do kind of all the time, right? You're kind of in the trenches, you're making decisions about what should we build next? You know, what is the next thing? What's the next priority? You know, what's the next move? What's the next strategy? As you scale the team, you have to step back from thinking about the what to communicating the why, the when, some of the how, and you spend a lot more time thinking about the who. You spend very little time thinking about the what. And this is really, really hard for people who are passionate about products because we love thinking about what should we build and what are the great new ideas and you know what should the priorities be. But as you're managing a larger scope, you're hiring people who are really great at the what themselves. And so you need to start stepping back and creating the platform. And the most important thing that you're communicating day in and day out is why. Why are we doing this? Why does it matter? And, you know, how do I align the whole team on why what they're doing is really, really matters, right? And who are we building for? And who is on the team? And are they owning the right pieces and the right components? and the right people deciding the right what's. So it becomes a lot more of, you know, a kind of a person who's building a platform as opposed to the person who's building the product because the people who are building the product at scale are not the lead, right? It's not you anymore. It's the people that you brought on that you really trust and you brought them on because hopefully they're better than you, frankly, um, and making a lot of these decisions, but you have to keep them aligned and motivated and focused on the, the same why. 
you seem to be very passionate about organizational culture. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? What do you think about the organizational culture in particular of tech companies and, and what could make it better? Sure. I'm an anthropologist. I'm very passionate about culture. I think culture is everything. One of the things that I know is that it's people are very capable of very different things in different environments. So one of the things that I experienced when I was uh, doing some field work in Russia and Mongolia, I was I crossed the, the land border between Russia and Mongolia several times. And there are two checkpoints. The first checkpoint, you go into the Russian checkpoint and you're leaving and people are lined up very quietly. There are two windows open and you pass in your passport. The old lady asks you some questions. She scans your passport and you go to the next checkpoint. You walk a couple hundred yards to the Mongolian checkpoint and you open the door and it's mayhem. Like people that are you know, yelling and screaming and there are three windows open and people are trying to shove their passports through these three windows. And, you know, the throughput is much, much slower than in the Russian checkpoint. And what's interesting is by definition, they are the same people, right? Because the only way you get to the Mongolian checkpoint is if you've already gone through the Russian one, right? They're the exact same people, but they have very different behaviors. And so the outcome of the organization and the outcome of the throughput is very different. And so what's happening there? What's happening there is that people know what the cultural expectations of them are in any particular environment. As human beings, we are extremely social creatures and we pick up on you know, completely nonverbal signals of status, power, hierarchy, work dynamics, you know, organizational style, we, we pick up on all of these things incredibly well, even though we can't articulate them. And so we rise or we fall to the level and the standard that is surrounding us. And so what leaders need to understand is that the culture, the environment that they set up, the standards that they set up, the norms and the expectations that they create, it will very much determine the impact, the throughput and the product that they get out of it. So, and it always starts at the top, right? The people who are the first movers in a particular organizational system are the ones who overdetermine what it will be. So as you scale, you have to think about what are the mechanisms that we're setting up that will be self-sustaining as people come in? How will these norms be communicated? How do we, um, you know, set expectations for people? So at Nextdoor, I'll, I'll t- give you an example. At Nextdoor, we have a longstanding tradition of welcoming people in by personally introducing every new uh, new member of the family, every new member of the community, and uh, having them share their special talent at an all hands. And this is something, this is a norm that per- gives people and uh, new employees a really, really warm welcome. And through the six months that I've been here, I experienced this. People are so warm and welcoming to new employees. You know, people, everybody says, you know, when I ask them, hey, how's your first week going? They say, oh my gosh, everybody is so nice and so welcoming and so helpful. And so we set up these norms of, you know, personal introductions, doing your special talent, everybody welcoming you personally so that people know that this is an environment where they are expected to be incredibly helpful to everyone else in the organization. So culture, again, culture is everything and it's the job of the leader to set up those organizational dynamics 
so that you can get the results that you hope to achieve. So any other kind of like advice on building that culture, especially a culture for innovation, like we're always looking for in tech companies? And are there risks associated with culture? And then when you think about that all together, how does that affect the type of products you make? Sure. So in terms of a a culture of innovation, the number one thing to have a culture of innovation is to make sure that you have real mechanisms that get you from being internally focused to being externally focused. And what I mean is to make sure that you're spending real time with your customers in their environments and on their terms so that you're constantly challenging your perception of the world and putting yourself in your customer's shoes. And that is the thing, when you see the pain that your customers are experiencing, that is the number one thing that drives an innovation culture. One of the risks, of course, as an organization scales, going back to organizational scale, is that as you grow, the organizational processes start to kind of ossify and you start to lose that culture of innovation that drove the initial idea for the product. So all companies are born innovative, right? Otherwise they wouldn't exist or they wouldn't actually get off the ground very well. But in order to maintain that innovativeness, you have to actually set up mechanisms. One big one is spending time with customers on the ground, on their terms, feeling their pain, because that is, I I find that that is always the impetus, the drive and the spark for great new ideas that are actually successful and then they come to market. In terms of other culture risks, I think there's a big risk with conformity on our teams. So when your internal teams don't reflect your external customers, especially in the top decision-making roles, that is actually, I think, a big risk to the success of the product. And a lot of us talk about it as, you know, diversity and inclusion, but I really like to talk about conformity risk because I think it's actually a business risk. And the, the business metrics now show that more diverse teams actually create better business success. And I think one of the reasons why is when decision makers reflect the customers on the ground you get just better product decision-making, right? You have better empathy for what your customers are experiencing. You have fewer blind spots. And so I think conformity risk is another big one. In addition, there's also, we talked about scaling risk, not seeing the next step ahead in terms of the scale that you want to get to and leaders that are sort of complacent and on their heels and saying like, you know, oh, we're growing. This is great. I'll just keep managing the way that I've managed, hands-on, doing everything myself, making all the decisions myself. That doesn't scale. Leaders need to understand and see a, a few steps ahead in terms of how scaling risk is coming after them and making sure that they keep staying what one step ahead of the next phase of growth that they're about to encounter. So scaling risk is another one. And then attrition risk. So All companies experience attrition. Again, when you hit inflection points of scale, changes in leadership, it is very natural for companies to experience attrition. What you don't want to do as a a leader is be caught on your heels, not understanding that that attrition is coming and not really planning for, again, the next phase of leadership that you need in order to take the company and the product to a new place. Wow. So you touched on a lot of different threads I want to pull on a little bit. And one of the things you talked about was, you know, diversity. And you have a product and you're building a product today. You've built products in the past 
that serve diverse populations. Talk to me about building products that serve diverse populations and maybe also ones that foster that community and sense of belonging. Sure. So, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I I really think it all starts with building empathy for everyone that you're trying to serve. And, you know, even in my role, you know, as the head of product, kind of chief product officer of Nextdoor, I'm personally committed to spending at least two days every month in the field, in different places around the world and around the country, in neighborhoods with our members, on their couches, understanding their mental models, understanding their life worlds, understanding what matters to them, as opposed to kind of me just looking at dashboards and metrics and, and you know, thinking that I understand what's happening in people's lives based on our product metrics. So I think it really starts with creating deep, deep empathy and therefore deep intuition for customers. It also means, again, reflecting the communities internally that we're designing our products for externally. So, you know, on our product team, we um, have a very diverse population, lots of immigrants, people who speak many, many different languages, even though we're a relatively small product team, we've got lots of languages. One of our designers speaks seven languages. So she kind of over indexes (laughs) on a bunch of languages, but almost all of us are multilingual. Many of us are immigrants. You know, we want to make sure we have, you know, good socioeconomic range as well. We want to have a diversity of perspectives. And so we really, it really starts with creating the empathy and then doubling down on that by making sure we have people in product decision-making roles that reflect the diversity of the communities that we're that we're serving. And then it also means, you know, you can't have everybody obviously reflected in, in your product organization that you're trying to serve all the time. And so it also means making sure that you're involving your customers in feedback loops around product decisions very early and very frequently, um, making sure you're kind of talking to them about product decisions, making sure that you're testing with the right communities And really, again, understanding how you're setting up your metrics to not miss the smaller minority communities that might be minority today, but might grow in the future. So, for example, if you launch a a BDC product in the United States and use that same playbook as you go overseas and you don't really kind of set up the right mechanisms to be very aware of the cultural context within which you're launching those products, you may get into some messy or sticky situations because cultural norms might be different in other places in the world. So really setting up a a playbook for expanding to different markets as well that will be contextually aware and culturally relevant in those places. So how does ethical responsibility fit in, right? I recently had an interview with a woman named Radhika Dutt, and we discussed the ethical responsibility of product managers and, you know, taking into account how much products, especially technology, affects people every day in their livelihood. You know, we aren't, you know, we aren't sworn to any oaths, no, no Hippocratic oaths here. But at the same time, we have some responsibility, I would think. What's your perspective on the ethical responsibility of product managers? Should we have one? Do we have some? And if so, does that affect our our thinking? Uh, In in case you're hearing that, that's the blue angels overhead. So uh, I I absolutely believe that one of our first and foremost responsibilities is to first do no harm and do no harm 
to the people that we're building products for, to the communities that we serve, and really to the larger world. So I do think that One of the things that I ask my product teams all the time when I'm kind of thinking about a product and I'm hearing a a product idea and I think, hmm, there are some risks associated here. As I ask the question of what could happen if if this idea is wildly successful? Because sometimes if something is wildly successful that doesn't exist today, you start to see how it could be abused, right? So once something was wildly successful, people come out of the woodwork to try to abuse it. And, you know, my background is, you know, I'm a a refugee from the former Soviet Union. I was born in Eastern Ukraine, which is a pretty not great place uh, right now. And so I have personal experience and I have a personal connection to a lot of the very destructive things that have happened with the rise of the internet, with the rise of human trafficking via the internet, with the rise of, you know, the sex trade over the internet that has allowed that trade to go global in very pernicious ways. And so I do think we have a very serious ethical responsibility to step back and ask ourselves, what are the bad things that could happen? How could this product be abused? And what could happen and what could the consequences be if this product is wildly successful. Because once it is wildly successful, again, it also attracts a lot of negativity and a lot of people who will try to exploit the product in any way that they can in order to, you know, for self-interested purposes. So I do think we need product leaders also who have lived internationally and in international markets. So I'm old enough to have lived through the 1990s and to have worked at global companies in the 1990s. One of the interesting things that happened in the 1990s is that companies were moving toward globalization in which you could not be a product leader, a top product leader at Procter & Gamble or Unilever or, you know, many of the big global companies unless you had worked in an emerging market. And when you work, live and work in an emerging market, you see a lot of the things that you take for granted in the United States and Western Europe just are very different. You see how people's mental models, how their cultural norms, you know, transform how you see the product and um, what you're able to just kind of take for granted in terms of what people will do with the product, right? There's a lot of unintended and unanticipated consequences that you're constantly dealing with and struggling with when you work in an emerging market. So I did, you know, I worked in the early 2000s in Moscow and in Russia, spent some time in Mongolia, did some IDEO projects in Africa and Cambodia, Southeast Asia. And so you do kind of start to grapple with these things on the ground where you are the decision maker and everything you do, the result comes back in a completely unexpected and unanticipated way. And then you do it again and it comes back in an unexpected and unanticipated way. And after doing that a couple of times, your aperture starts to broaden And you start to see that your perception of the world isn't everybody's perception of the world. And I think that that experience is critical for technology product leaders, especially technology product leaders in Silicon Valley today, because we are building products that will shape the future of global humanity. And we need people who have lived and worked in very different environments than Palo Alto or Cambridge, Massachusetts, or really anywhere in the United States or Western Europe. We need to have leaders with that perspective. 
Yeah. And to dig into that a little bit more, you know, you, you talk about thinking about if something really takes off, if it's huge, if it just exceeds your wildest expectations, you know, what impact that's going to have. And to take a step back and really think that through. Do you think us, us as technologists, as product leaders, as product managers, do we do that enough? I don't think we do. Or if we do, there is this optimism that everything is going to be awesome if this happens, as opposed to what are the things that could go wrong, right? If you're building something, you know, that is responsible, like basically that requires people to work for very low wages with no health insurance, and you do that, um, you know, thought exercise, what happens if we are wildly successful you're like, oh, well, we'll make a lot of money and everybody will be using our product and our mesh will go through the roof. And then you ask, but what happens to all of these the people who will be employed? Is it going to mean that there's going to be now 10 million people without health insurance? Right. I mean, you just add, you have to dig in and not assume that everything will be awesome if you are wildly successful, because that then forces you to look at your business model, look at what you're building and ask yourself, are these really the dynamics that I want to build in the world if we are wildly successful. Absolutely. I, I think that's very important. So, wow, there's so many things I'd love to dig into. If only we had a two-hour podcast. But uh, let's, let's skip. I, mean, I would love to get back and maybe for the next podcast we do together sometime, we can dig more into walking in a customer's shoes. Uh, there's lots of stuff I'd like to dig into. But I would like to hear a little bit more about your work at Nextdoor because Nextdoor is essentially a – at least as far as I know, a social networking platform with a focus on working in the community, like you described earlier in one of your examples. How does product management look different for that when you're making software that's accessible to the masses versus maybe where I've spent most of my time personally, which is B2B? Right. So first of all, at its core, it's all people, right? Every customer and every person, every user of any technology platform is a person. And all of those people live in a place. And until we are able to plug into the matrix and transubstantiate, we are still bounded in our physical bodies, which means that Nextdoor has an enormous role to play because everybody comes home to a neighborhood. Everybody comes home to their neighbors and everybody has needs that can't be fulfilled with a, with a scroll or a swipe. And those needs are really around connecting with people who can help you out, you know, if you lose your dog or if you are coming home late from work and you need somebody to help, you know, let your dog out. People who you're only connected to online can't help you in those situations, right? Only the people who live around you can help you in those situations. Nextdoor helps you connect with the recommendation, the recommended businesses that your neighbors trust. So Nextdoor is really a very different type of app and platform that is really around people who are proximate with each other. It's built on trust. It's about creating the power of the local community, harnessing the power of the local community so that people can help each other in their day-to-day lives to get things done to meet new people, meet new neighbors, and really find information that's relevant to them in a local context. And in terms of how do we do that for all of the people in our neighborhoods, we really believe that it is a a neighborhood is a multifaceted ecosystem 
We have people, obviously, who are there who are homeowners. We have renters. We have local business owners. We have this really multifaceted community also of service providers, right? You know, they're your plumbers and your painters and your general contractors and, you know, folks who come into the community and really add to the richness of the community. And we have verified real people at real addresses so that we can make sure that the community is a trusted, safe space uh, when you come on next door. And then that actually facilitates the online to those offline transactions and conversations, because you know that the people you're communicating with online, you can connect to in real life offline. Sounds great. I'm actually waiting for, I think, a postcard because I haven't updated my cell phone yet. I just got my my next door invite in my new neighborhood, so. ah. <laughs> which is pretty cool. I mean, I'm excited to check out the product uh, and spend some time in it. So we're getting up close to the end. Maybe three final questions. First, you know, what do you see as upcoming trends in product management? So customer centricity and a focus on understanding the cultural context that products are being placed within. I think that's a huge trend. I think it's a great trend. I think it's something that is an evergreen trend because we need more and more of that is products that are built really for people and based on people and based on empathy with people. So I see that conversation happening more and more within product. And that makes me, you know, that's just kind of music to my ears because of course my orientation is that way as well. Awesome. Now, a couple questions about you. What's your favorite product? My favorite product in terms of one that I have on my phone is Skyview, which is a really great product. Uh, I've got two little girls. I've got a kindergartner and a fourth grader. And we like to camp. They love to gaze at the stars. And they're always asking me, what star is that? What's over there? You know, oh, is that a planet? And so I can just like raise my phone up to the sky. We can kind of look at the constellations together. I can tell them whether they're looking at Venus or Jupiter or not a planet at all. And it really helps me. What The thing I really love about that app is it's an app, but it doesn't make me stare at the screen the whole time, right? It really helps me answer my daughter's questions. It helps me connect to them in a deeper way. And it helps to kind of like, do a very functional thing that's bringing us closer together. So it's not about the app itself. It's about the experience that I have with my daughters in the real world when I'm using the Skyview app. So, and I love it. That's cool. I actually, I have a similar product on my phone and I do enjoy it. It's definitely really cool. A final question for you, uh, three words to describe yourself. I would say the three words would be ambitious. I've always been very ambitious. I come from a very long line of very ambitious women. My grandmother was the head engineer of a very large Soviet factory. And so I've got a lot of that ambition in me. I think I'm very empathetic. I really feel for all the people and all the customers that I've ever spoken with, that I've ever done research with as an anthropologist. And finally, I am very WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Um, There are no kind of hidden agendas. All the agendas are out in the open. I really encourage everybody to speak very openly and very honestly with me. So I'm entirely WYSIWYG. Yeah, I love the Blue Angel sound too. You know, I I miss that from living in in San Francisco, being able to see them every year. (laughs) Well, thank you. This (laughs) This was, no, it's great. A little background noise in context is good. Uh, really appreciate your time today. This is wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. 
This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.